0: Welcome to The Feeding Pod. I'm Bree, your co-host. I'm a speech-language pathologist and certified lactation counselor. And I'm Olivia,
1: your other co-host, a registered dietitian nutritionist. We are here to bring multidisciplinary evidence-based information that is easily accessible about pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders.
0: We understand firsthand the importance of collaboration and how difficult it can be to navigate the ever-changing research on assessment and treatment of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. The Feeding Pod is here to provide research, support, and a dash of
1: comic relief. Now, let's dive right in. Disclaimer, all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This is intended to be educational in nature and does not replace the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment from a qualified healthcare provider.
0: Hello, welcome back to the feeding pod. This is Bree and I am here with Jessica Janoka. She is here to tell us about her professional as well as personal story of having a child with feeding difficulties um, that was in the NICU. So Jessica, I'm going to pass it to you to kind of go ahead and give us a little bit of background first of your experience as an SLP.
2: Sure. Well, first, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to talk with everybody today about, you know, being a speech therapist, my experience, and just diving right into it. So I am Jessica, I am a speech language pathologist, and I've been a speech therapist for about six years. And I primarily have worked with the pediatric population through pediatric rehab hospitals and currently work full-time in a outpatient clinic with a bunch of kids and young adolescents as well as infants. So I am in love with feeding therapy. I love to do swallowing therapy. And that is really where my, my passion is. So I love to treat kids who have complex medical and developmental needs.
0: Awesome. Well, we are happy to have you because obviously everyone here also loves pediatric feeding and swallowing. Um, so, kind of moving us into this next part, um, you know, really, Jessica's here to really share her story of having a little one that was in the NICU and talking about how that really shaped her experience as an SLP. So, Jessica, why don't you kind of give us, you know, the your your little one's first
2: story? Sure. So my son right now, he's about a year and a half um, and he entered this world kind of in a whirlwind. Um, I was pregnant and I had a very typical pregnancy. Everything was normal. I was healthy. I was happy. I was at the gym almost every day and nobody ever really thought anything was wrong. Um, I reached my 32 week appointment when I went to see my doctor and they noticed that um, you know my blood pressure was a little elevated but nothing so so you know drastic nothing to worry about and then one day I was driving to work and I kind of blacked out for 10 seconds while I was driving and I said oh that was odd so I get to work thank goodness I worked in a hospital I took my blood pressure and uh-oh it was not such a, a little thing anymore so Again, I went back to my doctor and they diagnosed me with preeclampsia. So basically that's high blood pressure, right? So I knew I would be delivering early. Typically they say, try and get to 37 weeks, right? We want to get them close to full term if we can, but we, we want to at least get to that point. So that was the goal. Unfortunately, we didn't quite get there. Um, I developed what's called HELP syndrome. So, for anybody who doesn't know or is not familiar with that, it stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelet count. So, basically, that turned into a medical emergency. So, at 33 weeks, they said, let's get this baby out. You know, we, we need to have this happen now. So, being a speech language pathologist and working in the hospital, I had so much experience working with preterm babies. I've worked with very, very ill babies, very sick babies, babies who had been in the NICU for so long. But I have to say when they told me I was having my baby at 33 weeks, it was an absolute shock. So um, yeah. So he came into this world and we were in the NICU for about 15 days. He, was born um, a little over three pounds. He was a little guy. Uh, he needed some respiratory support when he was born. He needed uh, CPAP. He needed oxygen and just, you know, all of those general medical things for stabilizing him. I was kind of knocked out that next day. So I didn't even get to see him that wow. day after he was born. Um, so I finally got to meet him two days after his birthday. So that was a crazy experience rolling up into the NICU in my little wheelchair with my husband and, you know, rolling up to his incubator and saying, wow, this this is my baby. I had a baby today or two days ago and just really um, meeting him for basically the first time. And that was a crazy experience in and of itself. And it just kind of got a little crazier from there, but So that's his story, my story, getting into it.
0: Wow. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I can't even imagine, you know, the kinds of emotions and things that we're probably going through through your head of like, wait a minute, two days ago, this happened and all of those things. But I think that's something that we sometimes overlook is like what an impact the medications can have on, um, a mother right after birth. And so I know we're going to talk about that more, but it's just a great point about it. So, um, Kind of moving into this next part that I know you feel, you know, very passionately about is talking about trauma-informed care. Um, so let's kind of talk about first, you know, with the therapist and the physician that were in the NICU, what is it that you found was helpful so that, you know, myself as well as the listeners can kind of take away of things that were important for you, you know, speaking as the parent in this situation?
2: Yeah. So, there were many, many things that I found really helpful as a parent. Being a parent, a first time parent, is super duper scary, no matter how much experience or expertise you have working with babies or being around babies. There's just nothing like it. There's nothing to compare it to. So the, the biggest things that I would say were really helpful were when the therapists and the medical professionals, they really tried to incorporate me in the decision-making. That was a huge, huge thing for me. I had the experience. I knew a lot about the medical information, but when people still asked me, like, hey, we're thinking of maybe removing the NG tube or we need to place the NG tube back in. How do you feel about that? That really put me in more of a comfort zone. It helped me feel more comfortable and like I was involved in my son's care. So that was huge, you know, and simple things. Hey mom, do you want to change his diaper? Do you want to do skin to skin? How would you feel if we did this before this? So simple things um, that, the therapists and the professionals did in the NICU really really helped both me and my husband feel like we were parents because it's it's not always like that so that was a really really big thing for both of us the other things that I really enjoyed that the staff in my NICU did was they restated their names and the reason I say this is because you go to the NICU you're in crisis mode you're going through this trauma and you're like, who are you? And why are you talking to me about my kid? And how do you play a role in this situation? And something as simple as turning your badge around if it's not facing the right way. So, so that way, if I'm not processing, you know, your discipline or your name, because I'm focused so much on what's happening with my baby or the beeping noises, I can, you know, turn and look at that and say like, oh, you're, you're the neonatologist or, oh, you're my child's PT. So, you know, again, it's just simple little things that they started to do that made me feel like, okay, I I know who these people are. I can ask them those directed questions, feel like I'm part of that team and, and, and know what's going on with my child. So that was really important as well. And then the, you know, the other things I think that are sometimes really, really hard in the NICU is giving parents autonomy. So in the NICU, babies are really sick. We know this, that's why they're there. But giving parents the ability to make decisions in their child's care, to help them to be competent in their child's care, whether that's you know, changing the diaper while the baby's still in the incubator, whether that's doing some facial massage or oral care or skin-to-skin breastfeeding, whatever that may be and whatever that baby is able to tolerate helping the parents to really feel that they can do it and they are a big part of the baby's recovery and their overall health and well-being that was really really important for for me when i was there
0: that makes sense and i think too like sometimes we get little ones and i'm sure you've witnessed this professionally that are post NICU and if a parent wasn't given that opportunity to to establish autonomy that they are capable and that competence of like they are able to do this. Um, those are those kiddos that then return back because they get home and the parents were never really given that guidance while they were in the NICU and they're on their way and then the parent gets home and they're like, wait, what were all the things they were doing? Because they think like you're saying the processing. Like not only are there medications that can impact that, but the trauma alone of having a child who then has to go into the NICU can just completely impair whatever professional experience you have. Um, It's like a a whole different world. And so it really makes sense that that us as professionals need to prioritize that and make sure that we're we're giving getting the family involved throughout the entire process. Right. Um, So kind of getting into the more difficult side of stuff, like, of course, these things occur. But what are some things that we're not quite as helpful that you experience that, you know, maybe we
2: should pay attention to. Right. So the biggest thing and going in the opposite direction is, is there were instances where I would come into the NICU and I wasn't allowed to do something with my baby. And again, it's a medical situation, right? So they, the professionals in the NICU are fantastic, but their jobs typically are to maintain homeostasis, maintain physiologic stability, and keep the children safe and alive. And, you know, sometimes that, of course it's important, but there's also a side of things that, as much as we can, we need to incorporate the parents. So sometimes when I would come into the NICU and I, I was told I couldn't do something or I had to wait to do something, or, you know, I was told to come back, or, you know, I've heard and talked to a lot of parents who they weren't allowed to even visit at certain times. So and every NICU is different. Every, um, you know, there's different policies, different procedures. Everyone's trying to keep the baby safe, but there are differences between each NICU. So there are some that maybe the parents aren't allowed to visit 24/7, and that can be really, really hard. I also think there are, you know, some breakdowns in how we ask families about their cultural, or religious, or spiritual beliefs or considerations in their child's care. There are a lot of families who have very strong beliefs in how they want to give birth, how they want to care for their child in those first few hours after birth. And I think that's a piece that isn't always missed, but when it is or not incorporated, it's a big one. And I think as a system, the, you know, hospitals and the professionals and us, even as speech therapists, we can do a better job of asking families, like, what are your beliefs and how can we help you maintain some of those things, even in this traumatic situation? So that's a big one. I think for me personally, one of the big things that I felt when I was in the NICU is there's, as we all know, a big discussion point about breastfeeding versus bottle feeding versus, you know, babies who need to be tube fed. So, you know, the choice of what you want to do with your baby, if that is an option, if it is safe. So, you know, for me personally, it was never in in my plan to breastfeed my baby for, you know, per, personal reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think every mother, especially when you're going through your child's first birth, you're, Figuring things out, right? So I appreciated those professionals who gave me time to you know process the information make my own informed decisions about that and really didn't pressure me however on the flip side there were some people who would come in and i would feel that judgment and that bias towards doing one way or the other and i it's so so hard and as a speech therapist myself i think we constantly have to check our own biases and things that we believe because in that kind of situation especially with new parents you just you can't judge you got to leave everything at the door so you know definitely if you're in this situation working with these families try and check your biases at the door because they they happen and we're unaware of them sometimes but it's kind of inevitable so that's a big one
0: absolutely I think something that, I mean, of course, I I don't have any children, so I can't speak as as much to this, but experiencing, um, you know, working with parents that are in the postpartum stage, you're also at an emotional state. And so others professionals need to be even more cognizant of how we approach these situations, because it can come off in a way that we may not have intended, um, but we need to leave all judgments and biases at the door like heavily um, and being very aware that there is a lot of trauma going on. And on top of the trauma, just knowing like there's a lot of different cultural, spiritual, religious, personal beliefs about why you're going to do something. And it's not our, it's not up to us to make the choice. It's up to us to help the parents with their choice.
2: So right. And we want to be part of that team. And Be a part of their decision makings because yes, we are the professionals. Yes, we have an expertise, but they are the experts in their babies and they are the experts in their babies care. So how can we put some of our own thoughts aside and listen to them and listen to them fully and completely so we can really best help them. So that way they don't come back to the clinic and have all of these feeding issues down the road because it was never addressed in the first place. So I think, yeah, absolutely, you're right. That's super important. Awesome.
0: Okay, so kind of going into, you know, obviously those are, those are some things that we, we need to be cognizant of. We need to think about how we can improve um, so that we can provide better care. Um, So, you know, including the family, we're talking about parent education and family centered care. Um, What are some things that you recommend? Um, How can we how can we better ourselves in this area?
2: Yeah, so there's lots of things we can do. I'm speaking from the speech language pathology perspective. So I'm going to kind of hone in on that. I think what we can do is promote things that we know are safe and effective in creating that caregiver and baby bond, right? So we know there's tons and tons and tons of research about kangaroo care or skin to skin. So if that's something that family is open to talking about the benefits of that, how it can help their baby regulate and be in a better state for maybe doing bottle feeding or breastfeeding. We can promote that positive oral experience for babies with sucking on a gloved finger or a pacifier or doing non-nutritive suck on a breast if they're not able to eat safely by mouth. And if they are able to eat safely by mouth, like how do we set up that environment? How do we set the parent up for the greatest success? How do we give them the tools and the information to make that feeding experience one that is happy and contented and safe for both them and their baby. I think that's a huge role for us as speech therapists and how we can help to facilitate that in the NICU and out of the NICU too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: So Going into, you know, building, you know, kind of off of that side of making sure that we're making the caregiver child dyad first and foremost, um, you know, how can we make sure, you know, when we're, we're talking about feeds specifically in the NICU, um, what is it that we want to focus on and what can we do as the, the SLPs in the NICU to promote those positive
2: experiences? Yeah. So in my clinic and working with my patients and families, you'll hear me say over and over and over again, quality over quantity. And this is a newer way, I think, of thinking of feeding. Typically, and especially in the NICU, feeding is volume driven. And many times you'll hear, oh, your baby has to take this amount of, you know, milk to go home and to be discharged from the NICU. Well, that poses a lot of problems because the babies who are in the NICU are, very complex. They have a lot of needs. They have a lot of things that are going on that they can't take that amount of volume consistently for several reasons. You know, they might be um, having respiratory distress or they might just be fatiguing when they're eating. So that focus on volume driven feeding is, is not the best. So um, what I've done is I've had training in the Sophie methods. So feeding medically fragile infants and that method really goes into looking at the baby. Are they stable? If they're not stable, what are some things we can do to get them there? And then working up hierarchically to get them to be regulated and safe in order to promote positive bottle experiences. So when we look at bottle feeding, we, we look at several things, right? So we look at the babies tolerance to feeds, we look at their fatigue, we look at the monitor to see their numbers. Are they maintaining their sets? Are they maintaining their respiratory rate, their heart rate? We look at all of those things. So for us, I would rather focus on the quality of the feedings, meaning they might not take the whole bottle, but are they physiologically stable? Are they happy? Are they content? Are they doing things that we would want them to, to continue to promote that positive experience? That's number one. And usually if we follow that guideline and focus on the quality, the quantity comes later. We see those babies figuring it out. We see those babies creating that positive oral experience and that association with the oral experience, and then ultimately getting to a point where they can tolerate the volume. So Quality over quantity is so, so huge. And like I said, I've been trained in, in the Sophie method, and there's um, some research that does support that. So, there was a research study by Horner and his colleagues, and they basically showed that there were improvements with feeding when this strategy was implemented. So less arching during meals, less spitting and vomiting with meals, and fewer infants were seeing a feeding therapist after they were discharged. That's huge. I love seeing babies, don't get me wrong. I love getting babies in the clinic. I love seeing those kids with some feeding concerns because I wanna help them. But if I'm being honest, I'd rather they not need me at all. I'd rather we set them up for success right from the beginning And that way them and their parents can have that relationship. They can move on with their life and continue doing great things rather than come in and see me once or twice a week.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like that, you know, this shows where we talk about like responsive feeding practices from the second that infant is born. We need to be thinking about that. And it also, again, going back to focusing on the caregiver child dynamic and that relationship you're focusing on the quality of the feeds. You're also including how does the parent feel about mealtime? If they're sitting there with like numbers, 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 numbers all the time, um, then they leave the NICU and they're still thinking numbers, numbers, numbers. We have to get the weight gain. We have to get them this much at least. And so then we are suppressing any of these hunger and fullness cues to make sure that we're on this schedule and getting X amount Um, and that can impact now the child's autonomy to, to be a good eater. And that's where we see these kiddos coming back because they didn't focus on that positive experience.
2: Right. And I see families and, and bless their hearts. I mean, and I did it too. And I think it's just a natural thing that they go home and you're jotting everything down. You're writing all the numbers. You're writing the volume. You're writing the sets. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so easy to fall into that mindset and that medical mind frame of things. And it's important. It's absolutely necessary, especially when you have a medically fragile baby. Mm-hmm. But that does take away from the caregiver and baby bonding. If you're focusing so much on the numbers and the volume and how much they took, then it's so hard to just enjoy that time with your baby and enjoying that experience having your baby with you. Because, you know, it's been traumatic from the beginning, from a NICU perspective, that we want to help parents come back to that, come back to the, the bonding with their baby and really enjoy those moments and like I said if they could focus on the quality the quantity comes later and that's important. No that was very well said <laughs> that is great.
0: Um, going off of caregivers I love this that you know this is something we talked about before but I love this thinking of you know, when we are talking about caregiver, we are not just talking about the mom, we are talking about all caregivers. And so, you know, thinking about dads, partners, grandparents, siblings, whoever it is that could maybe provide some assistance. So I want you to, to kind of talk about
2: that. Sure. So my husband, I love him. He is a wonderful man, but first time dad had no idea what he was doing, (laughs) let alone to a preemie, right? so he gets in the NICU and it's time to hold the baby and it's not something that comes naturally to him or to a lot of people I'll say sometimes Mm -hmm. so I think you know we we put a lot of onus on on the mom the the birth mom we'll say in this instance but um I think you know we sometimes forget about the other caregivers too. That they they need just as much support, um, if not more, sometimes to to feel that bond, to feel the connection, and to feel comfortable with those strategies. So whether it is the grandparent or the partner, or you know even the sibling, sometimes in certain situations, I think there's a lot that we can do to support those caregivers in helping their baby, helping them to grow and develop those positive experiences. So I could just remember the time when me and my husband were in the NICU and he sat down and we were holding the baby and the nurse came over and she was saying, you got to you got to loosen up. You gotta lighten your shoulders. You got to, you know, just wiggle it out. And she started massaging him and, you know, it was fun. It was playful, but it really, you know, kind of put it in perspective that this is, this is stressful. This is traumatic. And how on earth is my baby supposed to feel comfortable if I'm not feeling comfortable doing that? So I think it's important that we, we look at the whole family unit,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: who is going to be home with the baby, who is going to be holding the baby and feeding the baby or you know, doing the tube feedings. I think those people are just as important to the entire picture and the baby's progression and skills. So let's really you know try and incorporate everybody into it I think that's really really important too to help them feel comfortable as well
0: yeah, absolutely I always like to um, when I'm talking to my families of like dads can do like they can do skin to skin too your partner can do skin to skin too it doesn't just have to be the birth mom like they're you know we can do skin to skin with other people and As you mentioned before, there's tons of research on kangaroo care and skin to skin where it is just so beneficial. Um, And that just helps build that bond between the caregiver and the child. So
2: I love that. And and my son, I had the experience with feeding. So I felt really comfortable with doing the pacing strategies and doing the positioning with him. I remember one time my mother came and I was like, do you wanna feed him? She was like, nope, nope, that's okay. He's all yours, nope. Whereas, you know, if he wasn't in that situation where he wasn't born early, I think it would have been completely different. So, um, you know, it, it changes the whole family dynamic. It changes how people feel about even just caring and simple things with the baby. So let's, let's see how we can help those people as well. And those caregivers to feel better about that whole situation.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think you know, going back to like, you did have that experience. And so if we even go back to where we first started talking about the professionals, like taking their time, having you involved in those simple things, because yes, they seem simple, but at the time, you know, you you don't feel like you have a lot of control over anything because the NICU really is there just trying to keep your infant alive. And so they might overlook those things. So for us as therapists coming in, especially Involving the parents in those activities, making them part of the process, even if every little thing we're doing, checking in, having them do any of the things we can do. I mean, we talk about that in like early intervention care, you know, natural environment, having the parent do it and showing them really should start from that NICU stage of, okay, is this something the parent could do? And I could just coach them through it. Let's work from that standpoint. So
2: yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I I also wanted to, to mention that the trauma of having a child who has some medical complexities or has been in the NICU or has been in the hospital, it's long lasting for many, many people. So you may very well see children in the clinic who are older, maybe a couple of years old, but the the trauma is sometimes very still fresh in some caregivers' minds. And it's It's easy, I think, to forget that and to forget that some parents might still be in that fight or flight mode because they focus so, so much on those medical things for their child for so long um, that even though, yes, it's not happening right now, the trauma isn't going on right now. I think the trauma inside and internally is, is long lasting. So being respectful of that, still continuing to support parents in their grief process, in in dealing with that trauma that they went through, even if it seems like it was so, so long ago, that's a really important part of our job too, because it's, it's a continuum and it's not a straight line. And I will say from personal experience, it is not easy and it involves an entire village of people sometimes to help people and caregivers get through that and really deal with their grief and that, that, process. So I think that's important for newer clinicians to realize as well, as well as seasoned clinicians, that it's not linear. You got to meet families where they are in that process.
0: And I think that that really plays into like, yes, we know that as an SLP, we assess, we diagnose and we treat, but we also counsel and we also advocate and so we also need to be the person that fights for those kiddos and fights for that mama to get the resources that she needs or fights for the family to get access to a social worker to help, you know, get them more resources. Um, or we're the person that, you know, provides. Sometimes we're just the listening ear because they have had a really hard day and need to cry. And we have to remember that that, that is part of our scope. And um, I definitely encourage anyone who feels like, you know, they, they need to brush up on this or anything to take some, some CEUs on counseling, um, you know, read about it, look into that, look into trauma-informed care. Um, there's some really great courses on it. And because I think just like you said, even if you're not in a NICU, many of these families have the long-lasting effects of trauma and they are still processing and grieving and going through that. And so it's really important for us to be equipped as professionals
2: to, to help them deal with it. Yeah, and they don't do a great job of teaching that in most schools, not that I know of. So self-education is huge. Getting the CEUs, going to find some courses, it really will only help to develop the skill set as a clinician and and help that well-rounded therapeutic approach. Yeah, agreed.
0: So if anyone's interested in um, a quick book reading on counseling, I recommend the book How to Listen So Parents Will Talk and Talk So Parents Will Listen. Um, It's by John and Rita Somers Flanagan, and it is a really good one that talks about, you know, just making sure we pause, we're asking those open-ended questions, and we're providing time for these parents to, to open up to us, and I have found it to be really beneficial in my practice for improving my counseling skills. So, but thank you so, so much for being here. Is there anything else you want to add before you, before you go?
2: I just want to thank you so much for having me. And I'm always available if anybody has any questions and want to talk about their experience. I'm here to support you. So reach out. Awesome. And where can everyone find you? I am on Instagram at Stone Speech Therapy.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Go follow. She makes the best reels. Highly recommend. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much and, um, have a great night. Thank you.
1: Thanks for tuning in today. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the feeding pod. And from there you can click on the link either for Brie or myself, Olivia.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope that you'll leave us a review and we look forward to seeing you next time.